Two and a half admins, episode 142. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary Clara article plug is what makes OpenZFS the ideal storage solution for university environments? Yeah, so we took a look at a specific use case for ZFS and broke down some of the reasons why so many universities are choosing OpenZFS as their storage platform. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. So long passwords, thanks for all the fish, writes Google on their online security blog. This is about passkeys, which is essentially public-private key pairs and replaces passwords to some extent. Yeah. In particular, it's more about proving you control the device and that it's a trusted device. So rather than having a password, users can log in by unlocking their computer or mobile device with their fingerprint, facial recognition, or local PIN, or whatever it happens to be, and supplanting the password, which is starting to make sense. You know, if everybody's doing what they should, which is using a password manager for all their passwords, then we're not using passwords as passwords really anymore, are we? We're using a password manager. And at that point, instead of just being a random string of 12 or 16 characters or whatever, why not just use keys and prove that you control the password vault, whether that's just the phone device or an actual password manager. If you're familiar with SSH keys, pass keys work very similarly. It's just there's less personal management involved. Also, the way I see most people use SSH keys is And I don't really love this necessarily, but most people will basically have an SSH key that they copy around to all of their devices. The way that Google is using passkey, the passkeys are per device per user, not just per user. So you enroll each of your devices and each of your device gets its own individual passkey, which also means you can revoke the passkey for that device or Google can without affecting your ability to log into the rest, which is another reason why you probably shouldn't be using the same SSH key on every machine that you personally have. The other thing that is new here and that I, to be honest, I don't 100% love, Google has designed a way that when you have a device that you're trying to use, which doesn't have a passkey, you can authenticate yourself on that device using a different one. So the idea here is that you would use your phone's passkey to log you in onto a computer that doesn't have your passkey on it yet. And the way that works is the computer you're actually trying to log in on displays a QR code. You scan that with your phone and your phone then logs you in to the other thing. The trick there is in order to defeat, you know, a way that attackers work around 2FA pretty frequently right now. They'll they'll convince a target to authenticate something that's actually their login rather than the victim's login. And in order to mitigate that, what Google has done is said, okay, the whole like QR code scan login from your phone thing, that only works if your phone and the computer are able to talk to each other on Bluetooth to demonstrate that you're in the same vicinity with one another, which that is a great idea for mitigating that particular attack. But I have to be honest, I was not super pleased when I tested that and found out that Yes, in fact, a modern version of Chrome on my Ubuntu workstation can absolutely just fire up Bluetooth and reach out and talk to my phone. It's just not functionality I expected my browser to have, and I'm I, I'm still not sure I'm that comfortable with it, because everything the browser can do, an attacker that owns your browser can do. Yeah, like I would have honestly expected it to work more like right now if you try to log in with your password to a Google account that you're, is not from a machine it thinks it's seen before or whatever. It sends a prompt to my phone saying, is this you? If you can do that, why do we need the QR code step? And then 
because it's generated this way, it's making sure I'm less susceptible to this problem. Yeah, it's it's because, I mean, you and I and probably the vast majority of our listeners don't need that. But normal folks do need that because they very easily get into a pattern of, oh, damn it, the phone wants me to tap OK again. Let me just tap OK and make it stop bothering me. Problem solved. Now I can get on with my life. I suppose there and also if you don't have a Google phone, then Google maybe doesn't have as much of an ability to pop up a is this you thing when you try to log in from a browser. I don't think that would be that difficult. I mean, you would have to have a Google authenticator or some type of app on the phone. Exactly, which I already do. And, you know, millions of others also already do and ain't that hard. There's some advantage to the fact the way Google did it specifically is based on the FIDO slash WebAuthN stuff. And so it means that it works with non-Google key managers and so on as well. And isn't this what you two have been advocating for ages anyway, using key pairs instead of passwords? It is certainly a form of that. Like we've just been talking about, there are some differences in what we might have expected. And in some ways they make sense. And in other ways, they make me a little uneasy. Yeah. In particular, if you're then logging into the thing from your phone, then the phone can't provide a second factor anymore Yeah, via the authenticator app or something. Because now your phone is both factors and that's not as helpful. No physical proximity is the second factor, Alan. You know, if I'm trying to log in on my phone and I'm authenticating with my phone, then what is it checking proximity with? Gotcha. The second factor in that case is the fact that you have possession of the phone and can unlock it. Yeah. You know, it becomes all based on how good the fingerprint scanner on my phone works. (laughs) The phone was the factor for me. And that, you know, the fact that that requires unlocking anyway was already there for the push authentication whether it's Duo or Google or whatever. How long is it going to take you to revoke the passkey associated with your phone if you lose your phone, though? Sure, but same thing if you get your laptop stolen. But part of the thing is that until you do revoke it, they need your laptop and your phone to log into the laptop. But the problem is the phone doesn't have a second. Like Maybe it can pop something up on your laptop, but when I have my phone, I don't always have my laptop. But when I have my laptop, I always have my phone. It's not the same as, as the laptop, though, because the, the issue with stolen laptops and being able to get into things, usually when you're concerned about that, it actually doesn't specifically matter that they have the actual laptop, merely that they have data that's on the laptop, they have control of, blah, blah, blah. But the way this is working, you genuinely need the actual phone. If a hacker in Korea wants to log into my Gmail using my phone, he's going to have to hop a flight to the U.S. and steal my phone out of my pocket to do it. That's a pretty strong factor. Yeah. It's just, I see a bit of a weakness where the phone is trying to provide both factors, the key and the 2FA or whatever. Ultimately, everything always boils down to a single point of failure. You reduce them, you can never get rid of the last one. Yeah. Even if you put in every last hedge that you're asking for here, it's just going to leave you being a single point of failure. And arguably, again, it already is that with the phone. For sure. If you don't revoke your key when somebody steals your phone... It's really not the phone that's the single point of failure. It still was you. Right. So is this going to catch on then? It will. And and here's one of the biggest reasons that it will, Joe. It's not just that Google already, and Google does in fact already have this enabled and working. I'm using passkeys on several of my devices already. The big thing that is going to make this actually take off is that so many other services 
will let you do Gmail authentication. And presumably the Google passkeys will get you through that as well, which means Google hasn't just enabled passkeys to log into Gmail or even to other Google services. They've just enabled passkeys for a staggering variety of web services. And I think mostly once people get used to doing it for their Gmail and so on, or just other Google services, they'll like the convenience of it and start wanting to not have to poke at passwords on other devices as well. Now let's talk about the really ugly danger. Google's going to be in control of all of it. Now, the fact that they use FIDO, hopefully it means more websites will maybe beside the option that Google will let you do this FIDO passkey thing, the independent version of it. But yeah, the fact that Google and Apple will control, you know, a giant swath of everybody's stuff. It's like they already kind of do, but it's just getting that much creepier. Well, it's not just that. It gets even worse. It, it's it's an amped up version of the problem that already exists when, uh, if you've ever seen somebody like lose their Gmail account because an algorithm, you know, flagged them for something or Google decided that they were gaming AdWords too hard or whatever. And all of a sudden, like their fucking phone doesn't even work because it relied on that same Google login. Your phone doesn't work. Your email doesn't work. You can't log into you know, a whole bunch of websites that you had set up your account using Google Auth, like you just torpedoed your whole damn life. So this is ratcheting that up even one step further. The idea that losing access to a Gmail account can hurt even worse than it already does should be a little nervous making. If this was 10 years ago, I would have been less concerned about it. But do no evil is a long way in the rear view at this point. Yeah, like when I signed up for my Gmail, it was literally that login was just for Gmail and you you didn't log into Google. There was no place to log in. It was always everybody was always logged out. And then over time, suddenly that one Google Gmail account became the everything for all kinds of different tools. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com to try it for free on up to 100 devices. That's tailscale.com. Opensource.com appears to be pretty much dead at this point. And this coincides with quite large layoffs at Red Hat. So for those of you who don't know, I haven't contributed in a few years, but I used to be a a pretty heavy contributor to opensource.com myself. And one of the really ugly things about this closing is that it hasn't even appeared on the site yet. The reason that I know it happened is because I'm on the contributors mailing list for opensource.com. And to my great surprise, all of a sudden people started talking about opensource.com being done. There will be no more articles. It's all over with. And slowly the story came out dribs and drabs in the mailing list, including from people who are actually on the opensource.com team. In the last big round of 
Red Hat layoffs, and I'm just going to go ahead and call them IBM layoffs. I, I don't want to be cute about this. Um, Red Hat really doesn't exactly exist anymore. We all know that IBM acquired them several years ago. And the idea at the time was that Red Hat was going to be a transformational acquisition for IBM. The only reason IBM has survived as an, a multinational behemoth for as long as it has is it's been willing to reinvent itself every few decades when its business model dries up and take on a new role. Keep in mind, you know, the company that in its current incarnation is sort of a combination of Unix-like operating system consultants and, oh, hey, we bought Red Hat. You know, they got their start making typewriters <laughs> a century ago. So when these layoffs, the last round of layoffs was about, I believe it was 4% of uh, the headcount for Red Hat as an entire organization, which happened to include, from what I understand, the entire opensource.com team. They still have not made any public announcements about it, but the scuttlebutt on the mailing list is that the volunteers will pick up the heart and soul of the site and move it somewhere else with the, um, I don't know if I want to say the blessings of IBM, but it's at least the board consent. <laughs> and I don't see any other way to take this other than, you know, IBM retreating from open source, deciding, well, maybe this transformation isn't going to work. It's time to go back to, you know, what we know, which is don't do anything unless you can squeeze money out of a rock with it. I will also say that this is not the extent of IBM pulling away from open source in the last few weeks. But you can't tell us any more about that yet. Unfortunately, I cannot. I, I can't give you any more detail than that, or it would be too obvious. Feel free to ignore it if you like, but I do know through Inside Baseball that's not the only move IBM has made recently to pull strongly away from open source. It's an interesting choice considering how we're kind of getting to the point where open source has won and other options don't get the same consideration they used to. You know, nobody, the whole, nobody gets fired for buying IBM doesn't really fly anymore. <laughs> it's like, oh, you spent all that money when we could have just had an open source thing. It's really starting to become clearer that open source is the way to go, even if it's, you know, being perverted by companies like Amazon to take something open source and wrap it into a service and sell it. But it does seem an odd choice to pull away from it. Although, considering it's IBM, maybe not so much. They've always been about packaging up a bunch of software and selling it. And they think they can still do that with what they bought at a Red Hat. Again, they haven't always been about packaging up software and selling it. There was a time that they were all about mechanical typewriters. Yes. This is not a business that can survive without reinventing itself every few decades. And it is way overdue. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Red Hat acquisition was supposed to be. And, you know, it kind of looks like a body rejecting a donor organ. Yeah. And then if this Broadcom VMware thing is going the way that it looks like it's going, then it's going to really mean the base infrastructure for a lot of companies is just not going to be an option anymore, and, and there's going to be a lot of scrambling. What Broadcom and VMware thing, Alan? Well, it looks like the regulators are going to reject the merger. And then on top of that, just Broadcom being Broadcom is going to continue to try to squeeze VMware customers. They've already, you know, we saw, we talked about in a story late last year about them being like, well, we're going to look at all the customers that pay us at least this much and we'll do stuff for them. And, and we don't care about the bottom two thirds of our customer list. And if the trend like that keeps going, then you're going to see more people switching to, to things based on KVM instead of VMware. And if that trend continues, it's just the default tech stack of RHEL and VMware is just not going to be the default anymore. But as for opensource.com shutting down, now, you say that you've uh, heard things that you can't repeat. 
So I'm going to have to just totally ignore that because we don't have any facts that we can share. The fact is that opensource.com has not been updated for a while and it looks like it is uh, not going to get any more new articles. That doesn't just look that way. That has absolutely been stated concretely by the people who manage the site on the mailing list. Right, okay. So that is a fact. Yes. But writing about open source and being like a community resource, I suppose, doesn't mean that you're stepping away from open source as a principle and as a concept. Red Hat as an entity is like a three or four, I think a $4 billion a year company in terms of revenue, which, you know, that might be sort of cute pocket change to IBM, but it's still a lot of money that they're bringing in with their current business model, which is everything is open source, or at least everything is open source by default. So it, it seems like a bit of a stretch to me, because I don't know this extra info, because you won't even share it privately with me. But it seems a bit of a stretch to say that because they shut down opensource.com, which was a community resource, that they're stepping away or looking to move away from open source generally. That seems like a huge step to me. Again, you have to remember, the whole point of acquiring Red Hat was not simply now we own Red Hat, yay. The idea was it was supposed to be a transformational acquisition that would allow IBM to bring itself more in line with, you know, modern economies and modern ways of doing business. And this looks like a, a huge failure of that. You also have to ask yourself the question, why did Red Hat start opensource.com? Because as you mentioned, Red Hat is already kind of a corporate behemoth. You know, they've, they've got a four or five billion dollar a year income stream, you know, yada, yada, yada. This is not a tiny company. And they did not fire up opensource.com just kind of for shits and giggles. I mean, the whole reason of hiring an entire damn team to run an, a website that constantly gets, you know, community submitted articles and edits them and makes sure they're fit to print and reformats them and all the other million things you have to do to run a new site. The reason that you do that is because it gets people excited about open source and they got excited about open source on a Red Hat flavored thing. And I do want to be clear, Red Hat did not make opensource.com all Red Hat all the time, but everybody freaking knew who paid for it. Everybody. There's a big Red Hat logo in the top corner. <laughs> yeah. I would argue that if you're starting a new project as a technologist in the early to middle parts of your career, and you aren't already affiliated with, you know, the whole Red Hat infrastructure, I don't see a whole lot of reason to want to jump into that unless, you know, it turns out that you have grown yourself through this resource run by Red Hat that's bringing you into the community and everything's happy and friendly. You're like, I like these people. I want to work with this stuff and this technology. You take away all that. And now Red Hat starts looking more like, this is kind of cruel, but well, Oracle. <laughs> In particular, anytime we've seen anything open source suddenly become slightly less open source, it's a trend that continues. It never goes back to being more open source. And for those of you that have been around as long as we have, I will ask you to rewind your memories about 15 or 20 years and remember the way that people talked about Red Hat who were not Red Hat users back then versus the way people who are Ubuntu users or OpenSUSE users or whatever talk about Red Hat now. We speak of Red Hat a lot more favorably than we did back then. Back then, Red Hat very frequently got demonized as the Microsoft of open source. And there was a lot of hostility from people who weren't in that community towards it because there was this viewpoint of, you know, here is this company that's kind of perverting our community ideals. And now, like, you know, that 
They'll break my updates on a machine if like a subscription lapses and I got to jump through all these paywalls and hassles. And why would I want to subject myself to that crap when Debian's right there and FreeBSD's right there and Suze's right there and for rewinding far enough, Slackware was right there, all this stuff. Now, the last time I heard a lot of negative outpouring towards Red Hat was also after IBM purchased it when they killed CentOS. And yes, I know CentOS stream is a thing. It's not freaking CentOS. Let's not be cute about it. Yeah. And when you add all these different bits together, it seems IBM is very much basically pulling an oracle on Red Hat. I just don't think Red Hat gets enough community goodwill to survive in the long term without doing the kind of community outreach it was doing. I don't think IBM has a future either unless they they find, you know, a better way to go. Because it's like right now, again, I mean, Oracle's a huge company, but who do you know who wasn't already locked into Oracle services that was tasked with setting up a new project and thought, hey, I need to call up Oracle and find out what it'll cost to, you know, set everything up on Oracle. That's the way I want to go. I literally, I have never met anyone who wasn't already locked into the Oracle ecosystem that wanted to jump in. Have either of you? Nope. No. There you go. And it was like Jim was saying, I think, IBM had a really good chance to basically, what they should have done is like reverse merge themselves with with Red Hat and just make all of IBM in the image of Red Hat and keep going the way Red Hat was going. But they decided to hue shift back towards blue instead of red. And as the IBM tendencies continue to show through, it's just diluting what Red Hat is. You may recall that when the IBM Red Hat acquisition happened, and I'm not claiming any, you know, super special inside baseball knowledge this time. But you, you may recall that when that happened, the community widely expected that within a few years of the acquisition, Red Hat's CEO would become IBM's new CEO. Yeah. That did not happen. And in fact, Red Hat's CEO bailed. Draw your own conclusions. All I'm saying is there's there's nothing really here that breaks a pattern. You know, we have had a pattern of a long, slow slide down. And all I'm really seeing is it looks like we've about gotten to the lip. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. And Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com slash 25A to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Alan, you linked to a Twitter thread about an Intel boot guard key that has been leaked. Yeah. So what happened was there was a data breach at MSI, which is a motherboard manufacturer. And it turned out as part of the data leak, they got the private key for Intel's boot guard signing system, which goes to show that it's not a very good signing system. (laughs) In particular, the fact that Intel had to give the private key to this to various motherboard manufacturers. 
part of the problem with this is it turns out because MSI got hacked and leaked this key, it negates the security provided by BootGuard for all motherboards, like Lenovo, Supermicro, Intel's own motherboards, etc. Not just MSI motherboards. Just take breath and think about the fact that in 2023, an organization as large as Intel was using shared keys between completely freaking unrelated manufacturers. Yeah. Wow. Basically copying around the private key. Yeah, not setting up a CA and giving everybody their own cert that is not related to each other and never needing to leak the, the key to the CA because it's a CA. No, they're, they're just, you know, we're back to, again, it's not a key signing party, it's a key party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. To Jim's point, the way this should have been done, instead of having one private key from Intel, there should have been the private key from Intel that signed a subordinate key for MSI and a different subordinate key for Lenovo and a different subordinate key for Supermicro. And even each of those motherboard manufacturers probably should have taken that a step further and not use that private key to sign every motherboard image ever, but maybe have a different key every year or every quarter or something, or even just every different motherboard model. So that if a key does leak, you're containing the blast radius to all the things made in a certain year, at least, or something. Because, you know, we saw one a while back where a key leaked. Oh, yeah, this affects every Samsung device made in the last eight years. It's like great key rotation policy there. This is the rough equivalent of if you start to do business with a company and they say, oh, okay, so when you need to communicate with us, here's the email account that you need to use, and here's the username and password. We give this to all of our customers, and you just log into that email account, and you send an email to yourself, and we'll see it there. <laughs> It's pretty similar, really. It's exactly that bad. And the fact that this is for something called boot guard that's supposed to be all securing and testing the quality of the hardware and that, you know, the firmware isn't hacked and so on. So the leak of these Intel boot guard keys affects motherboards in Intel's 11th, 12th, and 13th generation, which is Tiger Lake, Alder Lake, and Raptor Lake. And what does it actually mean in real terms then? Somebody could make fake firmware and the motherboard would trust it anyway. In more Joe-friendly terms, it means you might as well have never had boot guard in the first place. It just turns it into an old school motherboard with no boot guard. It's basically what it boils down to. All of the potential attack surface that boot guard was supposed to wallpaper over is not wallpapered over because any rando attacker has the key and can therefore bypass those protections. The whole firmware business is sketchy as hell and you don't want to know how that particular sausage is made. Well, I remember when we talked about what we're excited about for upcoming tech, that was one of the things that you were excited about, Alan, was the possibility of it all being open source and, you know, not just these weird lockdown systems that we have no idea how they work. Yeah, where the, the motherboard firmware didn't have to come from MSI for my motherboard. I would have one I could compile myself and sign myself and know that it doesn't contain any weird bits. Because while MSI having this data breach is the scary thing, the really scary one is if someone had broke in and added some stuff to their code repository and not had that detected, and then that shipped in a bunch of motherboards, and now all those motherboards do something weird that they weren't supposed to do. But in reality, this isn't really going to affect much beyond compliance checklists, is it? Like, do people really break into data centers and start flashing firmware that isn't protected by boot guard onto servers. This concern isn't really so much about data centers. It's more about, 
I would say probably you know dead center bullseye target market for features like boot guard is it's not going to be the data center and it's also not really going to be like you know random Joe and Jane on the street. It's going to be enterprises. It's going to be what they want to do on you know their desktop stuff and their on-prem servers and whatnot because it's just it, it's another way to try to prevent physical access from automatically meaning game over. It's more security than normal people with a computer at home really care about. And it doesn't really address the real concerns in an actual restricted access data center with everything locked into cages. But, you know, just desktops. Yeah, yeah. Desktops littering an enterprise that has incredibly valuable information that breaking into the wrong desktop might get you. They are very interested in ways to prevent any random pen tester who breaks in overnight from just immediately getting a game over. Yeah, in particular, the big threat here is if they manage to infect a computer, then they can basically run a firmware updater and make their virus persistent. So it lives in the BIOS and reinfects the computer even after you reformat it. And you get this computer that you can't ever disinfect. And you think you did, and then it turns out you didn't. Like that Asus uh, software that just installs itself when you install Windows on an Asus motherboard. Yeah, That's a EFI feature available to every OEM. But like that, except for less obvious even. Yeah, and slightly worse. Yes. It's not a feature so much as an intended bug. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com and do send in your questions. Richard writes, on a Linux system shared with multiple users, is there a way to have each home encrypted individually and have it done automatically? Basically, so other users and root cannot read the content. I'm generally on Fedora, but I can look at other distributions if such an installation slash setup is easier. Well, other users already can't read the content of your home directory because by default it's owned by you and there are no everyone permissions on your home directory. It's yours. It's only root that you're theoretically worried about. Now, if you're worried about another user, you know, burning a privilege escalation and gaining root in order to muck around with your home directory, well, that's still not necessarily going to help because your home directory is very likely going to be decrypted when you're using it. And even if it's not right then, I mean, they can just Trojan the system with something waiting for you to unlock it and then do whatever they want to do. There are plenty of mechanisms and tools to have something where, uh, especially integrated with PAM, when you log in, your password decrypts your home directory and mounts it. And when you log out, it undoes that. But if the system is shared, 
then you know if the other people have root access, then they can leave something running as root that just waits until your home directory is mounted when you log in and then copies the file to their home directory or some place where they can access it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there are tools, I think works with Lux and a PAM module to automatically decrypt a home directory when you log in and then put it back at rest when you log out. But that only makes sense if while you have multiple users, they don't have root access. If somebody else has root access, they're kind of doesn't matter what their user is configured as. I suppose it would address the edge case issue of you're worried about somebody else who is a legitimate user of the system, stole the entire system and took it off site so that you no longer had access to it. Like it would help with that. But how many people have that specific concern? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, or stole the SSD out of it, maybe. Well, either way, the point is they would have to actually steal it. Otherwise, if they didn't steal it, if they left it where it was, they can just Trojan the system to wait for you to unlock it and then monkey with it then. The only way this idea really gives you additional security is in the case that they actually stole the system so you can no longer log into it and accidentally decrypt everything for them. So as long as the other users don't have sudo or the root password, then you should be good, is what you're saying. Yeah, you're already good because you already don't have permissions to be able to get into other users' home directories. Yeah, basically, you can achieve this for permissions if the other users aren't privileged. And if they are, then even the encryption is not going to help in that case. So yes, there's a PAM module that can take care of automatically mounting and unmounting your home directory with encryption when you log in and out, but it's probably not that useful in the end. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jrest.com slash mastodon. You can find me on Twitter at jrssnet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.